Joshua chapter number 3 tonight, and I want to preach to you for a few moments on a verse of Scripture that has burned on my heart for about two or three weeks now. Uh, my family, we're reading through the book of Joshua in devotions right now, and uh, this verse has been on my heart and mind. Uh, I actually had, an, and if you've ever taught or preached, you know what I mean, I've had an outline that I had uh, jotted down many, many, many moons ago on this uh, this passage and never preached it. But the Lord uh, developed that. Sometimes that happens. You'll have all these ideas that will come at you, and you'll just jot down notes and notes and notes and then stick them back in a drawer somewhere. And uh, your hope and prayer is that God might develop those into something that can help somebody a little bit later on. Joshua chapter number 3 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, And Joshua rose early in the morning, and they removed from Shidom and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And it came to pass after three days that the officers went through the host, and they commanded the people, saying, When ye see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then ye shall remove from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about two thousand cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that ye may know the way by which ye must go. For ye have not passed this way heretofore. Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua spake unto the priests, saying, Take up the ark of the covenant and pass over before the people. And they took up the ark of the covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come up hither, and hear the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth before you into Jordan. Let's read verse 5 once more. Our text is found there. And Joshua said unto the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that you've allowed us. I pray that you would speak to hearts, that you would do in our hearts that which would magnify and glorify your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that when we leave this place tonight, we'll know we have met with you, we have heard from you, and we have been obedient to you. Father, we love you tonight. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If we were to draw our mind's eye to the picture that is set before us in Joshua chapter 3, we would find the children of Israel on the east bank of the river Jordan. Now, if you watch the news any, then you've heard a lot about the west bank of the river Jordan. A lot of dispute, a lot of discussion, a lot of feuding and fussing and fighting. By the way, the Word of God told us that there would always be feuding and fussing and fighting between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. But I'd say that I still believe that God has given a title deed of that land to the nation of Israel. 
I still believe that. doesn't matter how politically incorrect it is to believe that. doesn't matter how culturally irrelevant it is to believe that. That's what the Word of God teaches. And uh, a thousand terrorists with a thousand bombs and a thousand governments without a single backbone in sight will still not change God's promise to the nation of Israel. And uh, there's all this fussing and fighting about the West Bank of Israel and the settlements that are upon the West Bank. Well, if you were to roll the, the picture back, you would find the nation of Israel here. They have come out of the wilderness. They are getting ready. They have already, uh, God has made them promises concerning uh, the, the city of Jericho. They have sent spies into Jericho to spy out the land of Jericho. And uh, they are getting ready to embark on a journey to the city of Jericho to see God do some wonderful and mighty things. Uh, before they ever set foot in Jericho, they're going to see God do some things. They're going to see God uh, split the Jordan River just as He did with the Red Sea. They're going to pass over on dry land. They're going to see uh, a what, what, what theologians like to call a Christophany or a theophany as Christ appears on the hillside beside Jericho, takes command of Joshua's army. You see, these pages that are set before us here contain many wondrous things that God did in the life of his people. Can I say that today, and I, and I am a dispensationalist, I do believe that portions of the Word, I'm not a hyper-dispensationalist, by the way, I believe that a, that a Christian can gain something from every page of this blessed book, but I do recognize that many of these passages and some of the promises that are within it are, are promises that are set forth to particular people groups, but I would say to you today that we have to be careful that our dispensationalism does not rob us of the truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that there's a lot of things that God has always done for His people, that God's still doing for His people, that God always will do for His people. We can gain a lot of encouragement if we realize that the same God that was the God of the nation of Israel is uh, the same one who sent His Son to die for you and I. Uh, he's the very He's that. The Bible says in First John two one we have an advocate with the Father. It's that same Father. It's that same God. It, our, our Savior is the same Christ that was the fourth man in the fire, that was the sword wielding captain upon the hillside of Jericho, that was the angel that stopped the hand of Abraham before he could take the life of his son Isaac, was the same. And listen, we can fuss about it, but I believe it was the same angel that stood in the path of Balaam's donkey. I think as you go through the Word of God, you'll find him on every page. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I just want to encourage you on this cold and dreary night that God is still able to do mighty and wonderful things in the midst of His people. As I read this passage, I see three things, and I just want to point them out to you very quickly. You know, there are things in the Word of God that are explicit, and there are things in the Word of God that are implicit. I don't think it's wrong to see the implicit, the implied things in the Word of God. And you'll find as you study the whole context of the verses before us that there are some implicit truths that give me great encouragement. I believe that God still wants to do wonderful things, but we have to approach Him and approach life in much the same way that the nation of Israel had to. I want you to notice that in this passage, first off, I see a sense of determination. 
Now, you say, preacher, what do you mean a sense of determination? Well, you know, we have a way of compartmentalizing the Word of God sometimes. We read the book of Joshua. The only thing we think about is what takes place in the book of Joshua. But you would find, if you were to just skip back a few pages, that they have just come out of 40 years of wilderness wandering, and uh, they had seen great trials. They had seen an entire generation that was uh, laid waste and was slain in the wilderness, that God allowed them to die. They had been through battles. They had been through difficulties. They had been through the chastisement of God. They have come out of that circumstance. A new generation is there, and they have a decision to make as to whether they're going to go on for God or stay where they're at. In much the same way, could I say that you and I have a decision to make about whether we're going to go on for God or stay just exactly where we're at? The devil always seeks to to destroy us through one of two ways, either through distraction or discouragement. And I believe that many around that won't get distracted get discouraged like Elijah did. And I think many around that don't get discouraged will get distracted like Solomon did. I believe in this day that we live in that we need to be keenly aware that if we're going to serve Christ, it's going to take a little determination. And I'm not trying to say we do it in the energy of the flesh. But I'm merely saying that if we could take that same determination uh, that we apply to so many areas of life, that same tenacity, that same stick to that we exhibit in so many areas and apply that to the Lord's work, then we'd be amazed what God could do. It don't take, it don't take Baptists very long to throw up the white flag. Not to the Holy Ghost, but to their circumstances. Amen? It don't take much for folks to give up and to quit. Uh, most of us, if we did if, if we did our job the way we do the Lord, uh, we would have been fired a long time ago. It don't take much for most people to quit. But I want to notice four things that they were determined about. I want to say that they were determined or had a sense of determination in spite of their chances. Now, you say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, I don't mean to imply that anything's really up to chance. But if you were to look at this group, this nation of Israel, and if you were to look at them through worldly eyes, you would have said they don't have a chance of being able to defeat those armies and go in and possess that land. Look at what it says. It's very interesting in verse number 4. And the Lord just pointed it out to me as we read. But the Bible says in verse number 4, look at the end of the verse, that ye may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way heretofore. You know that God's still doing new things? (laughs) We read in the Word of God about several times that God says, I'll do a new thing. And I understand that that in some ways, uh, you know, dispensationally, God is not doing some things uh, in the way that He used to. But could I say that in families, God's still doing new things. Uh, you know, they had a, they had an ancestry. They had a generation before them. And that generation before them perished in the wilderness. And how easy it would have been for them to say, Hey, we ain't no better than them, just like Elijah. I'm not better than my fathers. Let me die right here. It would have been so easy for them to say, If they couldn't do it, surely I can't do it. It would have been so easy for them to say, We can't break the generational cycle. We can't break what's expected of us. There's no way we can do it. And just stop right there on the east side of the River Jordan. By the same token, I think that, that you know, some, you hear people say sometimes, well, we've always done it that way. I remember one brother was talking to me, and you'd know his name if I was to call it, but we were talking, and the church he had been in, he had helped on the, the, the pastoral search committee at the church that, that he didn't want in this church. It was another church, but he, he had helped. And, and this church, I mean, they, they, my goodness, they've had so many pastors, they, they don't even know what to do with them when they get them. But they, uh, he was working on the pastoral committee, 
And, uh, you know, if you're on the pastoral committee, you're the jack of all trades, brother Larry. Isn't that right? And some of you that, that have been on one before. And they were getting a dinner together or something, you know, together. And, and they were going to do it in one part of the church and, and instead of another part of the church. And, and uh, they, you know, they, they started fussing and fighting. And I know you've never heard a Baptist fussing and fighting before, but they did. And, uh, and, and this, this old lady looked at him and said, well, we've never done it that way before. And he got in the flesh and looked at her and said, Yeah, and where has that gotten you? (laughs) The truth of the matter is, it'd be easy to look at our circumstances and say, We don't have a chance of doing anything great for God. But you know that as you go through the Word of God, you'll always find a, a trend, a pattern of people of great insignificance who are made significant by the majesty and power of an Almighty God. It would have been easy for them to have said, well, you know, our chances aren't very good. I want you to notice the second thing. I want you to notice a sense of determination in spite of new changes. Now, don't misunderstand me. You know me well enough to know I'm not talking about compromise. But we see that the nation of Israel had just experienced a change of leadership. They had just got through mourning the death of Moses. Now, it's hard for us to fathom sometimes. To this day, if you ask an Orthodox Jew, who's the greatest Jew to ever live? You'd think surely he'd say Abraham. Surely he'd say Abraham, the father of the faithful. Surely he'd say Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people. But to this day, the average Orthodox Jew, you ask them who the greatest Jew that ever lived was, and they'll still say Moses. Had it not been for Moses, they would have died in Egyptian darkness. Moses was seen as the great prophet and deliverer, as the great Messiah of that time. By the way, he foreshadowed the true Messiah that would come. But they had just got through. For 40 years, they had been under the leadership of Moses. Moses, it's hard for us to fathom uh, the relationship he must have had with them. You know, we only get the glimpses of Moses. And by the way, most of the time, you only ever get the glimpses of leadership. And that's one of the things you'll learn. If you're ever put in a position of leadership, you'll learn there's a lot, of, there's a lot to leadership that nobody writes about and talks about and preaches about and brags about. And Moses had spent uh, 40 years of his life in the courts of Pharaoh. Then he spent the next 40 years of his life on the backside of the desert raising sheep. Boy, I've always thought this was interesting. Raising the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro, who the Bible tells us was the priest of Midian. Now, isn't that interesting? Why is it that a, a, a priest would be keeping flocks of sheep, except maybe, just maybe, those sheep were sacrificial sheep? You see, Moses had to spend day in and day out tending, loving, and caring for sheep that he knew were going to perish. And in the very same way, he'd spend the last 40 years of his life as a shepherd of a different flock, tending sheep of a different sort, but still loving and caring for them and leading them, knowing that that generation would perish in the wilderness. Day in and day out, Moses was caring for these people. But now Moses is dead. God's hid his body. They didn't even have the opportunity uh, to, to stand and to see him laid in state and to, to look upon his body. God, to keep him from setting up camp and building a temple right there in the wilderness, had to hide the body of Moses upon Mount Pisgah. They never found it. Word comes down, Moses is dead. Joshua is the leader. You're to follow him. And most folks would have stopped right there and said, I'm not going to follow this Joshua fella. What do we know about him anyway? Can I just serve notice on you that life, life contains change? That's just the way it is. 
Now, mind you, I'm not talking compromise. Because our life may contain change, but Jesus Christ never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Word of God never changes. It's just as pure, it's just as perfect, it's just as inspired, and it's just as preserved as it's ever been. But life contains changes. You're going to have changes. A church experiences change to a degree. Uh, Do you know that that a church is uh, not an organization, but rather a living organism, a local body of baptized believers? And as an organism, any kind of organism is in a constant state of change. Can I just say to you, if we get hung up on every change that comes down along the pike, we're never going to do anything for God. Now, I'm not talking again about compromise. But I'm saying things change, things develop, things go. And by the way, culture is not what should dictate that change. Culture is not what should dictate that change. I was reading through uh, the, the website of, the, uh, of the, uh, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I think I got that right. Anything with that fancy of a name has to be crooked, don't it? Uh, the, the wing of the, the Southern Baptist Convention that just sponsored the, the big sit-down with the Sodomites where they they backtracked and the president of the Southern Baptist Convention openly repented of having denied homosexuality as being legitimate. Openly, not not in front of a church, even if he felt like he was wrong, not in front of a church, but in front of a bunch of lost individuals, got up and repented. But as I looked through their, their website, I noticed a word that kept popping up over and over and over again, and it was the word culture. Culture. Everything was about culture. The divorce culture, the gender identity culture, the the, the progressive culture. And it, it troubled me greatly. No matter what you believe about this denomination or that denomination, I'm not here to fuss with you one way or the other, but, but it troubles me that any group of Christians would be so enamored with the culture of this world. You know, culture is just another term for worldliness. That's all it is. If something is culturally relevant, that means it's worldly relevant. That's what that means. And culture should not be what dictates those changes. But I'm merely saying that you're going to have minute, simple changes. They're going to have... I mean, you, you've heard the stories. You've been around long enough. You've heard stories of, of, of churches that split like a ripe melon over the color of carpet they put in the sanctuary. You've heard about it. You've seen churches, and there's some churches that are, that are so staunch not in their convictions of the Word of God, not in the doctrine and the plain teaching of Scripture, not in their standards of separation from the world, but merely their traditions and the way that they do insignificant things that it prohibits them from moving on. We have to have determination that no matter what changes develop, we're going to go on and live for Jesus Christ and serve Him like we've always done. I see a sense of determination in spite of chances and new changes. But I would say that I see a sense of determination in spite of their big challenges. They're getting ready to go and destroy a walled city with, uh, with, with their voices and trumpets. How silly. I mean, let's be honest, how silly. Any military man worth his salt would have looked at him and said, You're crazy. You're crazy. Maybe not Patton, <laughs> but, but anyone else would have. They looked at him and said, you're crazy. There's no way. And even if you destroy them, there's nation after nation after nation just like them, just behind them. It can't be done. Listen, we, we traffic in the impossible as believers. We traffic in the impossible. 
That's not buzz language. Christ said that with, with men things are impossible, but with God all things are possible. That's biblical truth. It's possible to do great things for God. The only thing that hinders us from doing great things for God is that we treat God like He's such a small God. And if we treat every challenge as though it's unsurmountable, we're implying that it's too big a problem for God. I was interested as we preached about Ahab, Rahab. I, my wife was poking at me. She, she said, you're going to say Ahab a hundred times while you're preaching about Rahab. But I didn't. But now I just mentioned it. <laughs> was preaching about Rahab. And it, it, it interested me that whenever Rahab was in the city and the spies were sent out, you know the spies, and we touched on this, but the spies were sent out to search out the whole country. That's what, that's what the Bible says, to search out the whole country. Only if you read that passage, they didn't search out the whole country. Instead, they came in, went straight to the house of Rahab, were hidden in the flax on the top of the ceiling, after the, the men from the king of Jericho had finished searching the place out, they came down, they spoke with Rahab. Rahab said, listen, we've heard what God's done in your midst. We've heard about the Red Sea. We've heard about Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites. We know that God's going to take this city. We know God's able. You've got to give me a true token. So they said, well, take this scarlet cord that you're going to let us down out of the window by. Bind it in your house, gather your family in. But you know, the Bible says that after they went out that window, they went to the mountains for three days, and then they went back and reported to Joshua. They never did search out the whole country. They never did search out the whole country. You know what they did? They went in and they found out the opinion of one harlot woman. But they knew there was one that could be conquered. You listening? They may not have known about everyone, but see, here's the thing. God didn't send them in so He could find out how many soldiers there was in there. God already knew about that. It was worth going because there was at least one that could be conquered. This isn't even my message, but it's just so good I can't help it. You say, what keeps us going, preacher? Oh, I know it's easy to look sometimes. It's easy to get discouraged. You look, you see all the infidels. You see the wickedness and rottenness of this world. And, and that's biblical. The Bible says that in the last days that, that evil men and seducers would wax worse and worse. And by the way, that's in the context of the local New Testament church, too. That, that's not even talking about the wickedness out in the world. But in the church, it's going to get worse and worse. And it is getting worse and worse. And it's so easy to get discouraged. But can I say to you that since if Jesus ain't come and Jesus hadn't come, so since Jesus ain't come, yet. You know what that tells me? You know what keeps this preacher going? If nothing else does, I know that since Jesus ain't come back, there must be at least one left that can still be conquered for the cause of Christ. And until Jesus comes back, there will always be at least one. How easy it would have been for them to have said, we could never do it. Too big of a job. But they understood. And by the way, you know that their forefathers had said that at one time. There at Kadesh Barnea, when uh, Moses had sent out the spies, 12 spies out to search out the land. And they did. They went in and they searched out the land. And you know what they said? They came back. Listen, now this, this is what doubt will do for the believer. They came back and they said, we are as grasshoppers in their sight. Then listen, they said, and in ours. And in ours. 
You know, doubt begins by, by convincing you what the opposition thinks, but then it causes you to adopt the opinion of the opposition. You know why a lot of believers never do anything for Christ? They've got their mind thinking the way that they think Satan's mind is thinking. They've heard for so long from the devil that you're insignificant, that you can't do it, that there's no way, God's not going to help you, God's not going to give you strength. Uh, you, you witness to people, give out those tracts, it ain't going to matter. You, you witness to your family members, try to reach them, they ain't going to listen. And pretty soon they started to believe that lie straight out of hell. And they say, we can't do it. They spent 40 years in the wilderness and an entire generation perished because they lacked a sense of determination in spite of big challenges. I want you to notice a second thing. We see a sense of determination, but I see a sense of obligation. Joshua says, sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Can I say that we, we don't do anything to manipulate the power of God, but we can do things to facilitate the power of God. We don't, we don't do anything to take the reins away from God, but there's some things we can do to put the bridle in our mouth so God can lead us. And there are some things we're going to have to do if God's going to use us. I, I, it's summed up in this word sanctify. That's a very interesting word. That's a very doctrinal word. There, there's, a, there's a lot of implications to the word sanctify. And, uh, and by the way, never does the word sanctification mean the eradication of the flesh on this side of glory through our efforts and through our energies. Nowhere in the Word of God does the word sanctification mean that. But I find three principles for the idea of sanctification. I want you to notice, first off, that the word sanctification means to set apart. It means to set apart or to set aside. That's probably the most basic meaning and idea of the word sanctification. In fact, really, every time you read the word sanctified in the Word of God, that, that is the source or the realm of thought or the realm of context in which it's being used is to be set apart. Now, sometimes it means set apart for a purpose. Sometimes it means uh, set apart in our life. Uh, but basically, what the word sanctify means is to be set apart. Could I say, if we're going to see God do some big things, we're going to have to learn to be set apart in preparation for God to do big things. And we're so busy. We're so busy. We've got a lot of busyness in the church today. But we're not accomplishing a lot. Why is that? We get so ensnared in our busyness that we miss the time that we ought to be set apart in prayer and in faith and in expectation. We have to determine. You're going to have to get it through your head that it's going to take some things if we're going to see God move and work. It's going to take some things. It's not, it's not just going to... If what we're doing worked, it'd already be working. Yeah. We're going to have to determine that we are set apart for this cause and purpose. And you'll find all through the Word of God that any time revival came, it was always as a result of a group of people, sometimes one, sometimes many, that had set themselves apart in the pursuit and seeking after of God. We're going to have to be willing to do that. We're going to have to be willing to operate in the conscious expectation of God moving and doing something big in our lives. Now, I'm not trying to say that we can... I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm not talking about willing it into existence. But I am saying that it's going to take some real persistent, determined, and genuine prayer to see God move and work. Oh, God can do some mediocre things, you know, just on accident through our prayer life. But if we're going to see wondrous things, we're going to have to be willing to be set apart for those wondrous things. We're going to have to determine that we're going to consciously consider 
and pray and expect for God to do those things. I'd say we need to be set apart. But I would say, too, and, and even in my notes, I sort of put this in, in, in quotation, because this is the meaning of the word sanctification, but, but I think we need to understand it with just a little bit of grain of salt. I'd say we need to be set apart, but I'd say, too, we need to be spotless. Now, when I say spotless, I don't mean perfect or without any sin. But that is the meaning of the word sanctification, spotless or clean or washed. And I would say that if God's going to do great things in our lives, we have to live for Him. We have to do the right thing. It's not that we earn God's blessing through doing those things. You know, I remember hearing Lester Olaf say back of this, he said, there ain't no use in praying for blessing when we're not on blessing ground. Lester Olaf had a way of saying it. He never said anything new, but he'd say it in a way that, that just made it hit home. I say that it's foolishness for us to pray for God to bless us when we know we've got sin in our lives unrepented of and unconfessed. You know, really, God's no respecter of persons. That's what the Bible teaches. It's really not us that He's blessing. He's blessing His Word and He's blessing His Son. Now, we are His sons. But you understand that the only reason God blesses us is because we are joint heirs and heirs with Christ. We have been justified. We have been placed within Jesus Christ. And so when God blesses us, it's because He's blessing His Son. And we're going to have to live in such a manner. We're going to... Listen, if you know something's wrong in your life, get it right. Get it right. You remember what it was like when you had kids and you'd be teaching them how to do something? And, and, and you knew they knew how to do it, but they refused to do it that way. And you get frustrated and you'd say, Son, do it right. Do it right. Oh, how simple those words are, but what a profound truth. Do what you know to do, when to do it, the way that you know to do it, and do it faithfully. There's a lot of things in our life we're begging God to do. And the reason He won't answer because there's a lot of things in our life that He's begging us to do. We look towards heaven and we say, God, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. I want you to do this. But we never open our Bible. We never go into our prayer closet. We never share the gospel. I'm not saying that any of those activities earn the blessing of God. They don't. But they get our life in such shape that God can bless us without having to apologize to somebody else. God blesses and honors His Word. I see that they had to be spotless, but then I see that they had to be separate. Separate. You'll find that the word sanctified also denotes that thought, being separated. You know, if you're set apart to one thing, that means you've been set apart from another thing. Uh, part of the problem we have in, in churches today is, is folks that are separated from the world but not under the Lord, and then folks that think they're separated under the Lord, and they pretend to be, but really they're not because they've not separated from the world. It'll do you no good to separate from one unless you separate unto the other. And I see that the nation of Israel had to practice a clear biblical example of separation. You know what Joshua did? He, he, he took them and he had to circumcise every single one of them. They had to be circumcised. Why? Because Moses had circumcised the first generation in the wilderness when they left Egypt. But this new generation, they hadn't been circumcised yet. Circumcision is a picture of the putting away of the filth of the flesh. And before they could ever conquer, they had to be clean. Before they could ever conquer, they had to be separate. They had to be different. I'm not, going, I'm not going to fuss at folks or knock them over the head. And I'm not talking about a lot of silliness and nonsense. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of nonsense that people lift up and say, you do this and you're right with God. That's just the truth. There's a lot of nonsense that, that, that folks lift up and, and look at and say, you do this, you're right with God. I was listening to old Ed Ballou preach. You remember Ed Ballou? 
Thank you, Brother Charlie. <laughs> Anybody else remember Ed Ballou? Okay, a few. I was listening to Brother Ed Ballou preach, and he was, he was talking about a meeting that he was in. And he had, he had preached that Sunday morning for a fella, for a pastor. And after the service was over, that, that fella told him, said, Brother Ballou, I want to see you back in my office. I thought, uh-oh, you know, call, call, called into the principal's office. So Brother Ed Ballou went and sat down in the office, and he said, Brother, I hope everything's okay. I, I, hope, I, I, I try not to preach too long. I hope I didn't say anything. And he said, sit down. Brother Blue sat down. He says, is there a problem? Preacher said, yes, there's a problem. He said, I've never seen anything uh, and, and heard anything as vulgar as what I saw today in the pulpit. And Blue just stepped back. Fella said, not only did you do it once, you did it over and over and over again. He said, I come that close to getting my family up and walking them out of the... This is Ed Blue who's telling this. Now, this isn't just some fairy tale. Ed Blue telling this story. He said, I almost got my family and walked them out of the back of the church. He said, I don't want you back tonight. I don't want you back for the rest of the meeting. Brother Blue said, I, Preacher, I, if I've done something, I'm sorry, but I, but I don't know what it is. I, I, I'm sorry, Ed Blue said, and I had done what he said I had done. He said, it was when I was preaching and my glasses would fall, I'd reach down and push him up. Ed Ballou's words, he said, I about boxed his ears. <laughs> Amen. There's a lot of stupidity and silliness that people lift up and say this is the standard. But by the same token, there are a lot of things that just common sense will dictate to us that God's not pleased with. And we've got to learn to be separated from the world if God's going to bless us and use You remember what the Word of God says? Come out from among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing. You know what he said? He said, I'll be a father to you. Now, wait a minute. Does that mean if we're living in the world that he's not a father to us? No, he is our father. But he said, if you'll come out from among them, I'm, I'm not just your father. I'll be a father to you. He said, I'll take that active role in your life. I see that there is a sense of obligation, but let me give you a final thing, and, I, and I'll hush. We've got chicken biscuits, and I, don't, and I want them as bad as you do, okay? So I see in this passage a sense of determination. I see a sense of obligation, but I see a sense of expectation. For tomorrow, the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, I, I'm trying to be careful in how I say this because there's a lot of, you know, the, these... these <laughs> These effeminate preachers on TV. Did you know that being effeminate is a sin? We'd have a lot less scandals with sodomites in independent Baptist churches if they held a higher standard against men being effeminate. There's a lot, there's a lot of places, there's a lot of, of churches and, and, and camp circles, rings, colleges, whatever you want to call it, that, that engender an effeminate spirit in their young people because they've, they've allowed... Oh, man... Because they have allowed and installed women into the positions of leadership in those places and churches. Say, preacher, you got a problem with women? No, I ain't got no problem with women. I love women so much I married one. I love women. But the Bible says that a pastor is to be the husband of one wife. Still says that. Still says that. Uh, it, it, a lot of these effeminate preachers on TV that get up and they, they try to make it out like God is your errand boy in your prayer life. I'm not advocating that. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about this, this, this word of faith and this, this name it and claim it nonsense that, that, that permeates the, the television nowadays. But I am saying that we do have to operate in the attitude of faith for God to bless us. 
But without faith, Hebrews 11, 6 says, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. We've got to have faith. What is faith? Faith is the earnest expectation that God will be faithful to His Word and will bless us in accordance with it. That's what faith is. Now, we can give a thousand different definitions, but I think that's a pretty good one for right now. I see that they had a sense of expectation, notice first off, of the, uh, of the presence of God. You see, the Ark of the Covenant implied a lot more than just a wooden box with a pot of manna and, and, and Aaron's rod and, and the Ten Commandments. It, it, it implied a lot more. It was the very place that the Shekinah glory of God on the day of Yom Kippur would come down and dwell and, and, and would observe and accept the, the atonement sacrifice. The, the Ark of the Covenant literally was represented. It was not the presence of God, but it was representative of the presence of God. You say, preacher, how do you know it wasn't the presence of God? Because there were times when the nation of Israel, out of communion with God, tried to go into battle with the Ark of the Covenant, and it didn't help them one bit. But typically, when they were where they needed to be with the Lord, when God, when the Ark would go into the battle, God would go into the battle. Can I say there is an experiential and manifest presence and power of God that He blesses His people with when they behave and act in obedience to Him and through prayer are earnestly expecting it. Now, I'm not talking about a bunch of charismatic nonsense. I'm just talking about God sweeping through a place and stirring and moving hearts. God's able to do that. We ought to live in expectation of the presence of God. I wonder if you expected God to meet with you when you came today. I'm not being ugly. I hope you did. I wonder if you expected God to show up today. I think every time we come through those doors to meet and worship, we ought to expect God to show up. And we ought not just expect it because we're so good and, and, and blessable. We ought to expect it because we've been, we've been in prayer, because we, we've been in our Bible, because we've been living for Him, because we've been begging Him to show up and show out and meet with us and conquer hearts and reclaim the backslidden for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. We spent all week asking God to meet with us, not just in our daily lives, but in our church life. And so when we come through that door, we know that we've asked God to do it. We've begged God to do it. God wants to do it. And there's every reason to expect that God would bless His people with His presence. They had an expectation of the presence of God, but I'd say they had an expectation of the power of God. The Lord said, well, Joshua said, well, the Lord said, but he said it through Joshua saying, that's how the Word of God is. He said that, that, that nations will know and that you'll know that the Lord's with you when the Ark of the Covenant goes before you. And said that you're going to conquer nations, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. As you go through, God's going to conquer armies, and you're going to see the Lord win battles for you. There are things, in fact, anything worth doing can't be accomplished by the arm of the flesh. Paul said, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. If anything good's going to happen, it can't happen through the flesh. It's got to happen through the through the surrender of ourselves, through the mortification of the flesh, through the crucifixion of the flesh, through the surrender of our spiritual man, to the leading and guidance of the Holy Ghost, and to the effectual dependence upon Him. It's got to be the power of God, because there's no power outside the power of God to do what needs to be done. 
And God's able. God's able to. God's able to heal families. God's able to save uh, those that we we just could never believe God could save. God's able to strengthen us and give us encouragement. God's able to fight our battles for us. Uh, listen, we look around at, at these attacks in the world today that the Houston pastors uh, getting attacked, and, and and every once in a while you'll hear about them wanting to jail somebody for not marrying two sodomites. And, and we look at that thing and we think, what are we going to do? I'll tell you what we're going to do. God's going to fight. His, the battles of His people as He's always done. God's able. Now, I'm not saying we won't have to suffer. I'm not saying we won't have to go through some trials. But I'm saying that God's still able today. We ought to pray expecting the power of God to be manifest in the lives of others. We ought to expect that. And then I want you to notice a final thing, and I'm done. We ought to live with a sense of expectation of the presence of God and of the power of God but then also of the progress that God intends for us. You see, they were getting ready to cross over the West Bank, and they were coming home. They were coming home to a place by a way that they had never been before, to a place they had never been before. Now stop and think about that for a moment. They were, they were going to call a place home that they had never been before. Can I just... And, and I don't... I don't know if I can remember all of it, but can I give you a quote by the famous Scottish preacher John Knox? You know what he said? He said, by God's grace and strength, I want to hold the ground that God's given me. He said, and it may be, peradventure God will deem fit to ignite me again. But if not, by His grace, by His strength, I will hold the ground that God has given me. Can I say that in our spiritual walks, that ought to be our same attitude. God intends for us to be in a perpetual state of growth. Not necessarily numerical growth. Not necessarily ministerial growth. But God expects us to be in a perpetual state of spiritual growth. To be drawing closer to the Lord. I understand we all struggle. We all have battles. We all have besetting sins, it seems. But can I say that through God's grace and by His power and strength, we can gain victory over those sins that hinder us. I'm not talking about the eradication of the flesh. I'm not talking about sinless sanctification or sinless perfection. I'm merely saying winning these battles that we struggle with, that we pray over, that we beg God to give us victory in. It's the will of God that we draw closer to Him. It's the will of God. The Bible says that it's not God's will that we should sin in 1 John chapter 2. These things write unto you, little children, that you sin not. It's not the will of God that we sin. As long as we're in the weakness and infirmity of our flesh, we're going to sin, we're going to make mistakes. But understand that it's the will of God for you to get victory over these things in your life. We ought to live in earnest expectation of it. You know why a lot of folks, I'm just being honest now, you know why a lot of folks won't come to this altar here in a few minutes? Some of you, God stirred your heart about some things and some sins that you struggle with in your life. But you're afraid to come to this altar because you don't want to make God any promises that you can't keep. You've made too many of them and broken too many of them. And you're afraid to, you're afraid to repent and ask God's forgiveness because right now the slate is dirty. But you're afraid if He wipes it clean, you're just going to mess it up again. Can I, can I just tell you two things? One... God's not looking for your promises. God's looking for your surrender and submission. There's no promise you can make God, whether it's one that you keep or one that you break, that God don't already know how it's going to turn out. You don't have to promise God you're never going to make a mistake again. But can I say that too? We ought to quit focusing on six years ahead of us. 
What Joshua say for tomorrow? Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Tomorrow. I don't know why it is we feel compelled to tell God, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> Knowing good and well, that's probably a lie. What we ought to do is say, Lord, by your grace and strength, would you help me to live for you tomorrow? Lord, I want to see you do wondrous things tomorrow. Boy, that's a step of faith, too. You know, it's easy to pray for God to do wondrous things sometime, because pretty soon something wondrous is going to come along. But it's real faith in our prayer life to ask God to do something specific. And we ought to pray specifically. We ought to ask God for specific things. What, are we afraid that He's going to say no because He's got something better for us? Is that our great fear? If, if God says no, He's got something better in mind for us, we ought not be afraid of that. But God's able. God's able. And listen, if you're here tonight and God stirred your heart about something, God's convicted you. He evidently wants you to confess and repent and get it out of your life. He wouldn't have convicted you otherwise. So don't be afraid of it. Find your place at this altar and ask God to forgive you and to give you victory over it. Don't ask Him for a hundred years. Just ask Him for tomorrow. And live with the earnest sense of expectation that tomorrow the Lord's going to give you victory over it. So what do I do tomorrow, Lord, or preacher, if the Lord gives me victory over it? Then you pray and ask Him to help you the next day. And the next day. You remember, i got to quit preaching. <laughs> You know, the manna was only good for the day that it was collected on. Any longer than that, she'd spoil, get eaten up with worms. Give us this day our weekly bread, monthly bread, or yearly bread. Give us this day our daily bread. You just worry about tomorrow. When tomorrow comes around, you worry about the next day. It'll keep you in constant communion with the Lord.